From Chicago, the only place in the world where a convention center made of steel and concrete can burn to the ground overnight, and a paper replica of a skyline can't be set on fire at all, this is the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Yep, it looks like it's time for another exciting edition of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and I am your host, Sean, uh, Janitor Sean. Uh, oh, geez, what was the nickname I used on Pie Factory Podcast that just came out? Um, um, Alan Syndrome. That's right, Alan Syndrome. You can call me that, too, if you want. But, uh, wow, episode three already. And thank you all for, uh, for listening. And um, this is my rambling preambular intro i guess i really this is the part that is a hundred percent totally non-scripted not even bullet points so i kind of have to improvise i am recording this part the day before the episode is actually released and uh, let's see it's friday january 27th and i am at home Quite simply because, well, I've been feeling really, really, really burnt out with two jobs, two podcasts, <laughs> and just just general burnoutiness. You know what I mean? <laughs> Rough weeks at work, and you know. So I I called in. I just called in today. I said, you know, I'm I can't come in today. <laughs> so instead, I'm staying at home and just trying to relax and doing things that I enjoy, such as this podcast for one thing. And maybe do a few things around the house and stuff, you know, make it look nice for when my wife comes home. And um, so that's pretty much that. The only bad thing about staying home from work is that I had just ordered the Atari 2600 homebrew of Juno 1st from the Atari Age store. And it is actually due to arrive today. And I always have packages sent to the office because of uh, it, sometimes it could be just kind of weird and unpredictable when people leave packages here. Like when I got the Ed Ladin, um, what's it called? Supreme 78 controller. That's the one that's the, uh, uh, the joystick that has two sets of fire buttons. And when you lift the panel, you can switch it between four and eight ways. When I ordered that thing, I had it sent straight home because I knew it was going to be a pretty big package. And I, I work in Chicago and I live in Chicago and I take mass transit to and from work or sometimes I ride my bike and carrying a large package on my bike was not an option. And trying to get it into a crowded Chicago transit authority train was not really a good option either. I figured, well, you know what? When UPS delivers when I'm not home, what they usually do is they bring the package across the street to the laundromat, which doubles as a UPS drop-off point. They've done that many times before. In fact, the day before the Ed Ladin controller was due to arrive, job number two had some paperwork they needed to send me, and they sent it UPS. And I saw a UPS tag on the door that says, hey, there's a package for you. It's over at the laundromat across the street. So I went over there, got it, and it was just an envelope with some paperwork in it, like a, uh, attendance forms for a class I was teaching. So I was like, okay, cool, I got this. And I pretty much thought the Ed Ladin controller was going to go there too. So I get home the next day, and this is after I checked the UPS website and tracked the package and saw that it was delivered. So I'm all excited. I can't wait to try out this Ed Ladin controller. And it wasn't there. It wasn't in the foyer or foyer, whatever you want to call it, like most packages are. So I'm like, well, that's fine. It's probably over at the laundromat. So I go across the street to the laundromat and I talk to the owner and he said, I don't think there was anything delivered for you today. But he checked. Yep. Nothing there. 
So I was freaking out because I thought the package was lifted and I'm just freaking out. I, I emailed Ed Kelly and I said, Hey, can you help out? And I think the package was stolen and I believe it's the sender's responsibility. So he said, yeah, I'll help you out all I can. Just be warned UPS. They kind of suck. They're not going to be much help, but I'll do everything I can for you and all that. So I think we both reported it missing next morning. When I'm leaving for work, I leave the apartment, I go downstairs into the foyer, foyer, whatever you want to call it, and there's this giant honking box from Ed Ladden. So it's like, oh, thank God. I think what might have happened was one of the neighbors might have seen it and thought it was kind of something that you don't want to leave out for everybody and might have brought it in for safekeeping and then put it out before they left for work or something. So that's what I'm thinking. Our building super didn't, didn't know anything about it either, but that was my guess. And so, (laughs) but that's what kills me though. UPS finds an envelope with a couple of pieces of paper to be not safe enough to just leave in the foyer, but a big package, big package that might look attractive to thieves, They're like, yeah, you know what? No problem. We're just going to leave it there for all to see and all to grab. But thankfully, all worked out in the end. So first thing I want to do, and I apologize, but I need to rant about something here. Ladies and gentlemen, please, 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 if you're in the market for any homebrew video games, please start with a reputable source. Start with Atari Age. Start with Good Deal Games. Don't go to eBay first. Because I'll tell you exactly why. Every now and then, this happened recently, you will see a homebrew listed on eBay for an outrageous price with outrageous claims of how rare said homebrew is. Case in point, just recently, somebody had up for sale on eBay the Atari 5200 version of Beef Drop, which you can readily get on the Atari Age store. Um, I don't remember how much. I think maybe $35. You get a brand new cartridge and a manual. This boob was trying to sell the 5200 beef drop for almost a hundred bucks for just a bear cart claiming it was, and I quote, mega rare. There's nothing legally wrong with that, but it doesn't mean it's not a real cretin thing to do. People like that make me mad. You're scum. I don't care. All right. You're a dirt bag if you do that. And I know exactly what's going on. Someone's trying to make a lot of money off of somebody who doesn't know any better who might not be able to know any better, and it's ridiculous. So instead of getting something for less expensive, brand new, with the manual, with at least some of the money going to the developer, these jackwads have to go and try to gouge people. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's one thing if you have, uh, if you're, say, just trying to get rid of your collection and you just want to get rid of what you have and say, here you go, here's here's a reasonable amount that I want for it. Uh, Case in point, Uh, I bought the Bob DiCrescenzo 30th anniversary collection cart, which has many of his most popular games on it. I already had a few of the games that were on it as standalone cartridges. I didn't really want redundancies around laying around the place. So I went on Atari age and I said, first of all, I said, would it be in bad taste to me to sell off a few of these duplicate homebrews? And a couple of people were like, no, no, as long as you're reasonable about it. So what I did was, uh, I, I seem to remember, Pac-Man Collection and Scramble were the ones in question. So for Pac-Man Collection, what I did was I said, okay, 20 bucks, or if you private message me and tell me the exact name of it, I'll give it to you for 15 bucks. So 
The first person who private messaged me and called it Pac-Man Collection with an exclamation point got it for 15 bucks. So that's that's how I did there. But yeah, I mean, I sold the two carts off a little bit less than what they were for at the Atari Age store. But, you know, I just wanted to offset a little bit of the cost of getting the 30th anniversary collection and also clear some space in the apartment. I mean, that's one thing. But to gouge someone, to try to gouge someone for almost a hundred bucks is just freaking ridiculous. So thank you for letting me get that out. Huh? One thing I forgot to mention in the last episode. Well, truth is I didn't forget to mention it. it's due to technical difficulties. It like got messed up uh, during the mastering and it had to be taken out completely. <laughs> But I had mentioned in our prior episode that my Atari 7800 is modified. It has the AV mod. I don't remember off the top of my head who uh, whose mod it is. I want to say what maybe it was 8-bit domain, but I might be wrong. It's a very easy mod to do. It's a very tiny rectangular board, and uh, you just have to solder a couple of wires to the Atari 7800, um, desolder a couple of things on the 7800, cross a wire from uh, one part to another part of the 7800, and then solder wires to the mod and then solder the other end to the to some av ports that come packaged with the mod but uh, it was actually a pretty easy modification to do if i can find which mod it was i will put a link to it in the show notes but it had a good reputation for being beginner friendly like if you're not terribly experienced soldering but you know enough to know how soldering works it's easy enough to do and sure enough it was for me i it was the second thing i ever soldered and i got it right the only problem was with this mod, and I'm not the only person to uh, experience this, but the way the mod was is for some reason in games that have both Tia and Pokey sound, and I believe at this point, at least at the point of this recording, it's only Beef Drop and Commando. And I only have Beef Drop, I don't have Commando yet. But the Tia sounds were coming out loud and clear, but the pokey sounds, you could barely, barely hear at all. There was a terrible sound balance there. What's interesting is Ball Blazer, which is entirely pokey, sounded absolutely fine. Didn't need to turn the volume up or anything, but with both pokey and Tia sound, different story. And somebody had found that if you attach a resistor or a trim pot to the mod and make the proper adjustments, you could get a good sound balance. So I did a little bit of research and I opted for a trim pot because I knew that if I didn't like the balance after attaching it, I could just make an adjustment on the trim pot with a flathead screwdriver. And it's basically, a, for all practical purposes, a volume control. I could just adjust it there and then be done with it. With the resistor, it's basically either it works or it doesn't work. And I didn't want to deal with that. So I got the trim pot. Actually, I got five trim pots because you know how hard it is to buy just one trim pot and they're cheap too. They're like 50 cents for like 50 cents for five of them. So that's one reason you can't buy just one. So by the way, if anybody is in need of a trim pot, um, I have in my hand, uh, four of them. They are 10 K trim pots, uh, three pin. Oh, actually I take it back. This would have been a Phillips head adjustment, not a flat head adjustment. The little, um, rotary thing is uh, Phillips, but anyway, if anybody wants one of these, just let me know. So what I did was, uh, I realized, okay, if I do this, I, the fix involves getting another wire and connecting the wire to the trim pot and then the trim pot to the wire on the mod. And I'm looking at the mod that I did and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I have to desolder this mess. The mod that I did works, but 
it is not, it's a tangled mess and uh, pretty fragile. It's very easy to undo if I'm not careful. So I was like, I don't want to deal with this. And then it hit me. Why not just cut the wires? So I cut the wire that was going from the mod board to the RCA audio output. And what I did was I took one end of the cut wire and I soldered it to one of the side pins on the trim pot. And then the other end of the wire that I cut that was going to the mod, I soldered that end to the center pin on the trim pot. The trim pots have uh, three pins. There's like two side pins and a center pin. The idea is you solder one side pin and one center pin. Doesn't matter which way you do it, whether it's mod to side or mod to center or whatever, it doesn't matter. So what I did was I soldered that on, I turned the trim pot all the way to the right, and then I tested it out with beef drop, and it was absolutely perfect. So I now have a properly balanced audio-visual modification for the Atari 7800 with RCA ports, so I'm really happy about that. And in other video game things I just want to talk about briefly, I started at least trying to play the original NES Legend of Zelda and progress report. I still suck at it. I cannot get anywhere on it. Um, I've read the manual manual. Didn't really tell me anything I didn't already know. So I guess my next step is I really probably should check out uh, a map or two, but I keep losing all my life. I keep losing my life constantly. It would really help if it were an eight way game, but it's only a four way game and the controls are kind of sensitive. So I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just really sucking at it because I do want to see the rest of the series. Just want to see, just so I know what everybody's talking about when I listen to other video game podcasts or, or let's say when I'm going to Midwest gaming classic, which I'm planning to, by the way, and I'm just might be at a table with, uh, representing not only pie factory podcast, but also our friends, super podcast brothers. So you might want to check us out. Uh, I will give more details as they become available. If all goes wrong, then, hey, I'll be there just as another customer. But anyway, today's game is going to be, and I suddenly forgot what today's game is going to be, despite recording and post-production all freaking week. Alpha Race. Alpha Race. That's right. It's Alpha Race this week. But before I get into that, I'm going to uh, talk about some listener feedback that I got. So first off, I'd like to start off uh, addressing some feedback I got in general about the Atari 7800 Homebrew podcast. Uh, let's see. Cinecaster says, I haven't even played any 7800 Homebrews, but that is not preventing me from enjoying this podcast. I dig the format so far. The background stories are well-researched and interesting, and the content-specific skit bits are a welcome change of pace from the usual Siri voice thing. <laughs> oh, come on now. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Cinecaster. I, I try my best. Uh, I'm not going to promise that you're going to have like what you consider content-specific skit bits on every single episode. I'm going to try, though. I like to change things up and you know make things just not the usual. Hey, here's my podcast. Here's what I want to say. we got a great show. Technotronic is here, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I do want to you know add a little bit of spice whenever I can, but... Just to warn you, there are going to be some times when it is going to be like, hey, we got a great show for you, Technotronic is here, and it's going to be so predictable. But hey, this is a labor of love. <laughs> uh, let's see, TrekMD says, I'm still listening to episode one, but so far so good. 
I'm liking the format and I do like that you include Easter eggs, but don't really mention them until the end of the episode. That's a nice way to let people enjoy the episode and just not listen to that if they don't want to. As for the game, Beef Drop is one of my favorites on the 7800, so it made for a great first choice as far as I'm concerned. There are even hacks of the game that add more mazes, and even a Christmas hack, I haven't finished listening yet, so not sure if you mentioned these on the podcast. I'm looking forward to episode two and more. Well, thank you, TrekMD. And you know what? You're the second person to make... Yeah, I did not mention those. I did not mention those hacks before. You're the second person who brought that up. Recently, I was at uh, an Atari party hosted actually by one of the listeners of this podcast, uh, uh, Keith Sheehan, uh, thank, who, who is a wonderful host. He and his wife were excellent hosts. I had a really great time. And uh, and my friend and Pie Factory podcast co-host, uh, Jim, was uh, there too. And he actually said to me, he's like, did you know about the beef drop construction set? I was like, what? And I somehow missed out about that. It might've existed before I got into 7,800 homebrews, but yeah, there is a beef drop construction set where you can make your own beef drop levels. You have to use windows on it though. So, uh, that basically precludes me <laughs> unless I want to use my work laptop, which I try to avoid as much as I can, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So uh, thank you, TrekMD, and thank you, Jimmy G, for uh, reminding me about that. And uh, moving on to JFD62780. He says, Yo, Dauber, which is my Atari age and uh, Atari.io handle and, and other unrelated forums I'm on. I use that handle as well. Anyway, he says, Yo, Dauber, I'm mainly an emulated 7800 player, but I'm still enjoying your newish podcast greatly. Up to episode three, in fact. Oh, it's good to know because this is episode three. <laughs> that so-called Burger Time clone where you have to jump on the patties for them to drop. That's Data East's own 1990 arcade sequel, Super Burger Time, as found in a MAME collection. Thank you! I was thinking about that. I couldn't think about which one it was, but yeah, that that's exactly what that was. Thanks, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, he goes on to say, sure, everything's bigger, but you're right, just can't beat the classics. Yeah, yeah JFD62780, yeah, you said a mouthful right there. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's just hard to beat. Like Case in point, um, Blasteroids. Blasteroids, I think it's a great game. I've played it a few times. It has uh, really cool graphics, but I don't know. There's just something about it that just makes me want to go back to, say, Asteroids or Asteroids Deluxe. Uh, I'm, by the way, I'm not saying I won't welcome with open arms, say, a 7800 homebrew version of Blasteroids, but <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that. Oh, and I have a big correction I have to make. I think on at least one prior episode, I talked about a homebrew that has yet to be released on cartridge called Froggy. And those of you who haven't heard me mention it, it is an arcade-perfect replica of the Frogger game, especially the Pokey version. Uh, I believe it is scheduled to come out soon on the Atari Age store. Uh, it, there are just some parts that need to be uh, ordered and put together and things, but, um, I incorrectly credited Ken Siders as the developer for that. Well, Trevor had to correct me. The developer of Froggy is actually Schmutzpuppe, uh, whose real name I don't know and I couldn't find. <laughs> Hopefully I will know that information when the time comes that I have to have to know that when the time comes that I do talk about Froggy. So my apologies to Schmutzpuppe, which by the way is German for dirt doll, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, thanks to Trevor for uh, setting me straight on that. 
And I got some email from Michael D'Angelo, who not only has been a great supporter of this podcast, but also Pie Factory Podcast. So thank you so much, Michael. Um, anyway, he says, uh, my feedback on Casey Munchkin. I must have been nine years old when Casey Munchkin was released. It was before we got the Atari 2600. That wouldn't be until Christmas of that year. I was an arcade junkie at the time. My fix only limited to how often my parents would actually take us there. But I was hooked, as most of us were, on Pac-Man. At this point, I was hip on the scene, getting quote-unquote trade journals, such as Electronic Gaming. I remember reading about Casey Munchkin and how it was a Pac-Man-like game. Man, just looking at the print ads, it looked like a Pac-Man game, and I was dying to play it. Yeah, me too. Unfortunately, at this time, not too many kids I knew had video game consoles, let alone the Odyssey 2. There was one kid who lived in the neighborhood that we were friends with that happened to have an Odyssey 2, and also had Casey Munchkin. I think the game system was more his father's than his, as we were never really allowed to play it, except one time at a party. I remember I was finally able to play Casey Munchkin, and I wasn't disappointed. It was a fun game, and close enough to Pac-Man to get our fix. As I mentioned, we ended up getting an Atari 2600 that year for Christmas. Although there was no Pac-Man yet, the number of great games available for the 2600 far exceeded what was available for the Odyssey. I never really played it again until emulators became available. Not really a go-to game, but I enjoy it for nostalgic purposes. Trying the 7800 version, I must say I was very impressed. Although the graphics are more polished than the Odyssey version, the gameplay is pretty darn accurate as far as I can tell. I had a problem with controlling KC from time to time. It could be because I am using a keyboard to play. I have to admit, I did not realize there were different mazes until I played the 7800 version. I actually went back to the Odyssey version to see if this was in there as well. All in all, a great homebrew. I would definitely play this over 2600 Pac-Man. Not that I found Pac-Man to be that bad, but I just find Casey Munchkin a more challenging game to play. I admit, though, I would rather play the Odyssey version. The controls were just a bit smoother for me. Okay, enough rambling for me. Take care. So, Thank you, Michael. Thank you. We all knew that one kid in the neighborhood. Actually, I think one of my next-door neighbors had uh, an Atari before I did, and... Um, I actually I actually tried to look for opportunities to go to his house, even though I didn't like him. <laughs> Just to play. and I heard he got Pac Man, and I I wanted to go. It's like oh, I gotta find find an excuse to go over there. I hate this kid, but I want to go over there. <laughs> but um, I know what you're feel what you're talking about there. And yeah, it was usually a party in which I got to play Atari Twenty Six Hundred or any video game console really uh, before. My brother and I got our Atari 2600 for Christmas. When you said it was a fun game and close enough to Pac-Man to get our fix, that is pretty much how I felt when I heard about Casey Munchkin way back then. I knew it wasn't Pac-Man, but I knew it was supposed to be Pac-Man, and I think by the time I heard of it, the lawsuits had already started flying. So uh, it was in the news. I was like, ooh, there's a Pac-Man game I can play at home. I gotta see if I can get that thing or just play it somehow. So I didn't care it wasn't Pac-Man. It was Pac-Man enough. And yeah, I really did. I mean, I haven't tried playing the 7800 Casey Munchkin on um, an emulator, but I but I know I played the Odyssey 2 version on an emulator using a keyboard as well. So yeah, if you're using a keyboard, it might be kind of rough going, especially if you use a Bluetooth keyboard. So I don't know if you're using a Bluetooth or what. 
but Bluetooth keyboards can play a little bit of tricks with you uh, simply due to the latency and the communications and things. This is one big reason I don't really play 7800 stuff in emulation. First of all, it's not easy to get going. I'm on a Mac. There is no dedicated 7800 emulator on the Mac, so I have to use MESS, which is now incorporated into MAME, and running MESS through MAME is the biggest pain in the hiney. It's not worth it. That just brings a challenge to me. If I'm playing a 7800 homebrew, it has to be on a cartridge of some sort, so I can't really emulate and yes, I know the, uh, somebody recommended the Mateo 16, I think it's a 16 and one. Um, I actually am looking into that. I am actively looking into that right now. So, uh, uh, Bobby, I think it was, who was mentioned it before, Bobby, I just want to let you know, I'm looking into that. But, uh, again, Michael, thank you so much for your feedback. So let's talk about Omega Race, which is the game that Alpha Race is kind of sort of loosely based on. I'll get to that later on. Omega Race was an arcade game put out by Midway. And in fact, it was Midway's only vector graphics game. It was programmed by Ron Halliburton, formerly of Allied Leisure. And uh, Ron Halliburton also designed many redemption games and pinball machines. And he is currently one of the principals over at Acme Game Design. Omega Race was released in 1981, but it took place in 2003, so in the future then, but in the past now. I guess Strategy Wiki actually has the best description, so I'm just going to read you what they say on Strategy Wiki. The Omega System developed a method of trading its warriors to protect their star colonies against android forces over the city of Komar. Omega fighters raced to engage and destroy these aliens in the mines they planted. The Omega method is so successful, it commands fear and respect from all throughout the galaxies. This method is codenamed Omega Race. Now, as for Omega Race as a game, it was loosely based on Atari's Asteroids. The story, as told by Jack Pearson, also formerly of Allied Leisure, is that there were some designers who got a hold of an Asteroids arcade machine, and they conceived of this new game uh, when they put masking tape on parts of the screen on the Asteroids game so they could create sort of a track, if you will, and the intent was to fly the spaceship around the track. Now, the object of the game Omega Race is similar to that of Asteroids in that you want to destroy all the stuff in the screen before it destroys you. And you thrust around the screen, and you rotate your ship, but specifically your goal is to destroy the enemy mines, of which there are two types. There are vapor mines, and there are photon mines. And once you do destroy the mines, you advance to the next stage. There are command ships that appear and lay photon mines, and your job is to destroy those command ships as soon as possible, not just to stop them from laying mines, but also because they become death ships. And death ships will come at you really fast and leave vapor mines. And you need to watch out for the slow-moving droid ships. Command ships and death ships will fire at you, but the droid ships won't. But you're still going to want to destroy that sucker. If you collide into a mine or a ship, an enemy ship you will lose a life. Now, there's an invisible force field in the screen that limits your movement. It's in the shape of a track, 
which recalls the developers putting masking tape on the asteroids monitor, of course. And if you collide with the force field, you ricochet off the force field. You bounce right off of it. In the middle of the screen, there's an information box. And what is in that information box is what you would normally find on top of a screen in other video games. It contains your score, the high score, and your reserve lives indicator. The information box has a rectangular border around it, and if your ship collides with the information box, your ship's going to ricochet. It's going to bounce right off that. So basically, the info box, along with that force field I mentioned earlier, those two things form the track that you're flying around. And again, you can bump into the barriers all you want, but if you bump into a mine or an enemy ship, you lose a life. Or if you get shot by an enemy ship, you lose a life. In terms of scoring, I use that phrase in terms of scoring way too much, don't I? <laughs> but uh, in terms of keeping track of your score, there, how's that? Uh, photon mines will score you 350 points. Vapor mines are worth 500. Droid ships are worth 1,000. Command ships are worth 1,500. And death ships are worth 2,500. In the arcade version of Omega Race, you use a spinner to rotate your ship, and you have a thrust button and a fire button. And uh, I never played Omega Race until literally May of 2016. I never saw it in the arcade. I knew it existed, but I played it in May of 2016. I really wanted to see what it was all about. Over at Galloping Ghost Arcade, not far from where I live, they have an environmental cabinet of Omega Race. What you do is you get inside it, you sit down, and just where your hand reaches when you extend your arm, when your arm is totally at rest... The left hand has the spinner, and the right hand has the fire and thrust button. It is such a good layout, and I was loving Omega Race in that environmental cabinet. Trust me, it is awesome. It is so worth a trip to Galloping Ghost just to play that environmental Omega Race. Of course, spinners aren't really common for home video games, so for home conversions, there have been different accommodations. Perhaps the most notable one is the Atari 2600 version of Omega Race put out by CBS. That version came shipped with a quote-unquote booster grip. And it's basically a trigger-style controller that you stick over the joystick, the CX-40 joystick, that is. I don't think it'll fit over any other one. And what it does is it has a fire button on it, and you use the joystick's built-in button to thrust and you plug the Atari joystick into the booster grip, and then you plug the booster grip into the console. Alpha Race on the Atari 7800 was programmed by Breck Brixius, um, a.k.a. SiO2 on Atari Age, sometimes going by uh, silicon dioxide, and the artwork was done by John Atari Boy Calcano, a.k.a. Atari Boy 2600 on Atari Age. Now, Alpha Race is not an Omega Race conversion per se, but the appearance and gameplay are extremely similar. Breck's intention was to make a different game with some of the same elements, but harder and faster than any home version of Omega Race. Breck said, and I quote, To me, Alpha Race is a different game because it has different rules and mechanics from Omega Race. I don't see a need to recreate an arcade version of Omega Race because people can play Ron Halliburton's masterpiece with MAME. And I can see that. There are definitely differences between Omega Race and Alpha Race. We'll get into that later. But as for the Atari 7800 version, now, for a while, Alpha Race was available not on the Atari Age store, at least not yet, but it was available from GoodDealGames.com until just 
recently. So um, I'll still put a link to Alpha Race on the Good Deal Games website in the show notes. Actually, it's not just Alpha Race, but a lot of Atari 7800 games on that site. But Alpha Race is definitely on there. It'll be listed as sold out. But once in a while, Good Deal Games does have items that are back in stock. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye on that page. When you get the cartridge, you will get no box and no printed manual, interestingly. And the reason that there's no printed manual is kind of like what Breck said. You don't really need one. And if you really, 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 really absolutely must have some kind of a manual, well, guess what? You can get some instructions on the cartridge itself. All you do is you just leave the cartridge turned on, and during attract mode, you will actually see the instructions on screen, and it's very brief. Is, do you still call it attract mode on a home console, even though the whole purpose of attract mode is to attract you into playing the game? I mean, if you already own the game, why? Eh. Oh, semantics. Hopefully the description that I give is going to preclude you from waiting for the instructions during the attract mode, as it were. The first instruction you are given is, and I quote, avoid the indestructible Omega-3. Um, indestructible is misspelled, by the way, but hey, doesn't detract from the game, of course. The Omega-3 is shaped like a little fish, and I, uh, I see what he did there. The next instruction you're given is, and I quote, race to warp gate in time to advance, fail and die. That's right, race. One difference between Omega race and Alpha race is that Alpha race actually includes a race. It's not like a car race or something. It was more like you race against a timer. Kind of like the race game on The Price is Right, I guess. That's a good way to compare it. But uh, not only do you have to destroy the enemies and the mines on the screen, but once you destroy all the enemies, you have to get to the warp gate before the timer runs out if you want to advance to the next level. If time runs out, you lose a life. The warp gate is a small box with an X in it. And let me tell you something about that warp gate. Yeah, you got to get there as soon as you can. What happens after you clear all the enemies is that the Omega-3 comes out and it bounces around the screen. It doesn't really chase you. It just keeps following a diagonal pattern ricocheting off the walls diagonally. And you got to be really, really careful about that thing. If if you're a good shooter, the one thing that's going to kill you is that Omega-3. And if it kills you once, well, guess what? It kind of starts over in another position. It doesn't just keep going. Hard to explain, but easier to understand. (laughs) But you have to get to that warp gate to advance to the next level. There's a progress bar in the middle of the screen that, well, obviously shows how far you've gone. And one of the instruction screens tells you, and I quote, warp 64 times, discover what waits beyond. Uh, Spoiler alert. um, I'm not very good at this game. I've maybe, maybe reached 10 warps so far. Nowhere near 64, so I don't really know what happens uh, after the 64th warp. And um, Alpha Race uses a joystick, and you can configure how that joystick operates, but, well, to an extent. Move the joystick left and right to rotate your ship, just like, say, in Asteroids or any of those other rotate games. If you pull back or pull down on the joystick, it triggers the brake, which, believe me, you're going to want if you find yourself bouncing off walls a lot. Uh, That's both in the game and in real life, I might add. Um, And you can also configure the controller so that either pushing up or pushing button number two engages the thrust. 
My personal preference is the button number two option, by the way, but uh, your mileage may vary. Hey, by default, it's uh, the, the default option is pushing up on the joystick. And that's just one of the options you can configure during the attract mode. If you push up on the joystick, you get a menu. You can change the background color. By default, it's kind of a royal blue, but you can change it to black, which is what I usually do personally. You can change your ship color. The options are white, yellow, and red. I kind of like to make mine red, just to make it stand out from everything else in the screen. You can change the color of the Omega-3 ship. The options are green, which is default. I usually leave it on that, or white. And there are three different difficulty levels. The difference among the three difficulty levels is basically how aggressive the enemies are, both at their speed and how aggressively they fire at you. Easy difficulty, obviously, the enemies start off slowly and they don't fire at you very much and you get five lives. The default difficulty is normal and you start with four lives. Hard difficulty, things get really hectic. The enemies are fast, they just shoot at you like nobody's business and you start with three lives. There's also an option for warp field. By default, it is on. As far as I can tell, the only thing that that option does is it enables and disables the transition screen from one level to the next once you get into the warp gate. Uh, so if you want to save like two seconds uh, per level, then disable that thing. I usually do just because I'm an impatient person. But there's also an option for drag, and by default it is on. If you turn the drag off, then basically you have very, very little friction on your ship. You hit thrust once and you're going to be going and going and going and going and going. You'll eventually slow down and eventually to a stop, assuming you survive. And when you get to the next level, of course, you stop moving. But uh, let me tell you what I usually do. I usually set it to easy difficulty, mainly because I want to see what happens on that 64th warp. Now, the way that I've been playing it lately is I set the background to black, ship color to red, uh, I leave the Omega-3 ship at green, difficulty I move to easy because I want to see if I can get to that 64th warp. I use button number two as the thrust control. I turn off the warp field just so I can just move right on. And I actually turn off the drag. And the reason I turn off the drag is because what I like to do is go up and down completely vertically 180 degree well maybe 90 degrees depending on how you look at it but you know what i mean just go straight up and down and just keep bouncing back and forth and it's easy to pick off the enemies in the mines like that and then as soon as uh, the omega-3 ship comes out of course i have to be very very careful in fact what i recommend you do when you thrust do everything you can to avoid thrusting diagonally just thrust left and right or up and down, or else you're going to have a lot of difficulty with that. So uh, thrusting diagonally is a good way to lose control of the game. As for scoring, do I see that every time I talk about scoring, as for scoring? Well, in terms of scoring in Alpha Race, if you destroy an enemy that is carrying a mine, you get 300 points. If you destroy an enemy that is not carrying a mine, that's 150 points. And if you shoot a mine that is deployed, you get 50 points. By the way, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but the Omega-3 ship also lays mines out. So uh, that's something else you got to watch out for when the Omega-3 comes out. You get an extra ship every 10,000 points you score. And quite honestly, that's really all there is to um, Alpha Race. 
when Omega Race was out, I knew of its existence and I saw pictures of it and I had no idea what it was. I never saw it in the arcades. And for years and years and years, I thought, man, that's a weird looking race game. And of course, I didn't realize it until I actually played it, that it is not a race game at all. But uh, I really like what Breck did with the Atari 7800 Alpha race. It's very creative. It's pretty addicting, actually. You want to keep going more. You want to start a new game over and over and over. It's not the most graphically interesting game in the world, and that's not because of Breck. It's because of Omega Race itself. And I know Breck was trying to create a different game, but it's obvious that he was using Omega Race as a jumping off point, especially because the artwork is based on the original Omega Race artwork, especially the logo text. It's quite obvious. In fact, in the uh, discussion thread in Atari Age, John was clearly, clearly trying to make the title text look like the Omega Race title text. And I think he did a good job with that, by the way. Really, that that's that's really it. You know, this is a, a short episode, isn't it? So as I did with previous episodes, I asked for feedback about the games and um what was interesting is that at least on atari.io there weren't a lot of people who even heard of alpha race uh rose dower 70 and rick r both said that they never heard of it rose dower admitting that uh he never keeps up with uh, homebrews all that much and atari lbc mentioned this i thought was kind of helpful i just wanted to share that if anyone wants to try out alpha race the final version of the rom was made freely available by the author via atari age and uh, there's a link to uh, that actual post. And in fact, I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Anyway, sorry to interrupt myself. The final version of the ROM was made freely available by the author via Atari Age in the development thread. Indeed, this is the case with many of the 7800 homebrew titles. If you don't follow the 7800 homebrew scene or don't have a 7800, I highly encourage you to try these great games out via SD cart or emulation. If you try a game and really enjoy it, consider supporting the dev through a cart purchase. Thank you, Atari LBC, and I totally, totally agree with that sentiment right there. And let's see, No Swear Gamer, Phil, says, ah, Alpha Race. <laughs> oh, let's not start that again. <laughs> Never heard of it, and that's why you are doing the show and not me. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. In response to a link that I posted to the ROM, Rick R says that he finally got around to trying it. And uh, I'm going to read this because I just want to see that, that I'm not going to be one-sided in this podcast. Uh, Rick R says, I tried it. I really hate to be negative, so I'll keep my comments short. It's a copy of Omega Race. It's choppy and slow. The crazy physics of Omega Race, flying around, bouncing off the walls, using momentum, is completely missing here. Omega Race on the Commodore VIC-20 is much better. Again, I apologize. I just really didn't care for it at all. Thanks, Rick R. I mean, hey, if that's your opinion, that's your opinion. No need to apologize. If you don't like it, you're not going to like it. It does seem to me that in terms of just Omega Race itself, it seems to me from all the research I did and from when we covered Omega Race on Pie Factory Podcast, there's a plug for you, <laughs> I found that the VIC-20 seems to be the definitive home version. Uh, I personally don't like the 2600 version. And uh, the thing is, like I said earlier in the episode, Alpha Race at least originally was not meant to be an exact copy of Omega Race. Yeah, it was highly influenced by it, obviously. But Breck wanted to put some different twists into it. And uh, for some people, those twists work. And for others, they don't. That's all there is to it. 
I mean, yeah, if you don't like it, you don't like it. That's perfectly fine. That's pretty much everything that I heard from Atari.io. Now, if we move over to Atari Age, Toiletune says you have thrust like asteroids and you shoot things, but then you bounce off the walls. I'll try it again in a day or two and maybe have a more coherent post. Well, you know what? To be honest with you, that is the best one-line explanation of Alpha Race or even Omega Race that I could possibly come up with. So that is really good. And this wasn't really feedback about Alpha Race itself, but I do want to address this. Uh, Jinx says, when is the deadline for the review? Now, my goal, and so far I've kept up with this goal, is to put out a new episode every two Saturdays. So my deadline, quote unquote, is usually the Thursday before the episode is released. Like, say, 11.59 p.m. Central Time Thursday. So let's see. This episode is coming out January 28th, which means that the deadline theoretically would have been January 26th. So basically every two Thursdays. But the truth is there's no real deadline if you post feedback about a specific game and uh, it's already too late, no problem. I'll still talk about it. I'll still address it. So please don't feel that you can't comment any further on past games. And Trevor says, played this game for the first time in a very long while, and then many times over, attempts stretched over the last few days. Potential for a great game leaves the player yearning for more. The ship's movement is too abrupt. Consider the lack of multicolored sprites. One of Maria's 320 modes would have been far better suited for this title, allowing it to present and perhaps play considerably better. I really want to like this homage hyphen port more, but the final product leaves a feeling of underwhelmed. The aforementioned lack of color and resolution coupled with very little TF sound almost providing the vibe of a game release for the 2600 rather than the 7800. Hoping to see more from the author as there is some really good talent evident. If brought together with some polish and overall improvements to game presentation and handling, a great game could be the end result. All right, thank you for that, Trevor. And I kind of know what you're saying, and I'll be honest with you, when I was playing Alpha Race, and I've been playing a lot of it lately, actually, I was thinking something like this could easily be made on the 2600, because, yeah, it's not ex exactly high res. But one thing I'm thinking of is... Thinking back to the original Omega Race, the original Omega Race was a vector game. And in translating from vector to raster, such as the 7800 is, you're not always going to get good results from it. But I kind of see what you mean. Yeah, it would be interesting to see what would happen if, uh, say, Breck took this game and made it look like a 7800 game. And technically, the sprite is multicolored. Because one thing that I noticed is that when, like I said before, I choose red for my ship color. And I noticed that when you thrust, the exhaust is white. So it's kind of multicolored there. But uh, yeah, but again, keep in mind, this is not supposed to be a 100% Omega Race clone. So you're not going to have the same features. I, it is what it is, I guess. In fact, something I'd like to propose is that Alpha Race would have made a wonderful Omega Race sequel because of all the uh, the additions and things of different gameplay. But uh, again, thanks, Trevor. Thank you for your feedback on there. Oh, and Jinx chimes in again. I agree with Trevor's findings. The movement seems too fast, like you tap the thrust and you're going your max speed instantly. Definitely an older type of game that may seem more 2600 suited, 
but what the heck better than what I could have done. <laughs> so many of us can say that jinx. Thanks. Uh, yeah, definitely better. What I could have done. I said before, you know, I, I am a programmer for a living, but I have no freaking clue how to design a game. I wouldn't know how, for one thing, I can't do graphics for crap. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. So all, all my, Coding is done on the back end, really. <laughs> Gambler172 says, a good game. Gambler172, seriously, you have to take up so much freaking time saying all that stuff. Jeez, give everybody else a chance. <laughs> or, honestly, honestly, Gambler172, thank you so much for that. Thank you. And then Toilet Tunes chimes in again, I think with a more coherent post. So let's see what he has to say. Uh, I like the extra options on controller choice and ship colors. Me too. The game itself feels simple, but I wind up dying fairly quickly. I haven't found a good strategy yet. If this was part of a high score club, or is it high score challenge? Um, he's, he actually writes HSC. But I'd feel more challenged to play it more and might wind up liking it a lot. But for right now, it's an okay game. Yeah, thank you, Toilet Tunes. And I think I should mention right now, you say you haven't found a good strategy yet. I think I found one. Like I said before, I met, I found a good strategy. At least it works for me. I started getting much higher scores when I did this. Of course, the disclaimer is that I've been using easy mode lately instead of normal or difficult. But just to reiterate, my strategy is to constantly thrust either up and down or left and right. Never diagonal because if you thrust diagonally you're going to lose control of your ship pretty easily and i'm constantly moving up and down or left or right and it's a lot easier i found to number one dodge uh the enemies and enemy fire because hey it's hard to hit a moving target and also i get a, a good broad range and i get a good chance to basically spray the screen with firepower and blow away the mines and the enemies and things and um i actually recorded a video of some of my gameplay, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But uh, Toilet Tunes, thank you so much. And moving over to S. Ramirez 2008, uh, he says, I like this game. I like the sounds and options, but admit that it takes time to get a hang of the thrust and brake controls, especially once you start bouncing off the walls while trying to avoid the indestructible Omega-3. I prefer to play with the background set to black, the ship set to yellow, and the lights off because it provides a vector-like look. I also like the accompanying letter, which serves as a certificate of authenticity. It not only identifies the number of your hand-produced cart, it also provides a bit of insight to the developer. The letter states that, and I quote, Alpha Race represents a lengthy labor of love by a lifelong fan of video games and the industry which was largely founded by Atari. Thanks for making this game, Breck Brixius, and there's a little smiley face. And uh, thanks for sharing your thoughts on that, S. Ramirez 2008. And you know what? I totally forgot about that. Uh, sadly, right now, Good Deal Games no longer has Alpha Race in stock. It's marked as sold out. Maybe I have a Ferg effect now. <laughs> uh, those of you who don't know the Ferg effect is that when he announces the games that he's going to be talking about on the 2600 Game by Game podcast... Sales on eBay tend to increase of that game, and prices might tend to rise, too. But uh, that'd be cool if I had a Ferg effect, <laughs> especially for the people designing it. But anyway, yeah, I totally forgot about that letter, so I, I uh, looked and I found mine. And um, let's see, here's what uh, mine says. Uh, it's dated January 4th, 2016, which sounds about right, because I think that's when I got this. Uh, to whom it may concern, 
This letter is Certificate of Authenticity for Alpha Race, a game cartridge for play on the Atari 7800 Pro system. This Alpha Race cartridge for Atari 7800 is hand-produced by Breck Brixius, the author of the game program contained on the cartridge. This cartridge is quite rare. It is one of a small batch that was produced for Good Deal Games, www.gooddealgames.com, a supporter of continued game development for classic Atari systems and an excellent place to purchase homebrew titles for your Atari 2600, 5200, or 7800 system. Alpha Race represents a lengthy labor of love by a lifelong fan of video games in the industry which was largely founded by Atari. Atari made technology fun, made computers friendly, caused people to dream about what might be, and ushered in a revolution in gaming and home entertainment. May there always be games to play on Atari, and fun-loving people to play them. Sincerely, Breck Brixius, and uh, his initials are written here in blue ink, so it says BB. Now, I don't have a number on the cartridge, so there's nothing in there that mentions it, and I'm looking at my cartridge right now, and I don't see anything that looks like it'd be a serial number or anything. But while I'm at it, I should mention this. I have not talked about the cartridge design in any of my shows yet, so I'm going to start right now. The Alpha Race cartridge, the front label with the, the picture and everything, at the very top it says Atari 7800 video game cartridge in white text in the same font that most actual Atari 7800 games are. And there's the Alpha Race logo stylized after the Omega Race logo. And a very, very well-drawn yellow ship and a green ship and some purple ships and some uh, light blue mines and a very nice outer space scene. And it says, programmed by Breck Brixius, art by John Atari Boy Calcano. And in the lower right corner, it looks like it might be uh, Breck's official logo. I don't know, but it's a black rectangle with white text that says SiO2. And then in smaller text, it says silicon dioxide. And the end label is... uh, customized. It's basically the same style as the outer space scene. It's kind of dark blue gradient into light blue with uh, stars and things. And it has the alpha race logo on it. And I might as well, while I'm at it, I might as well talk about the previous games I covered. Uh, The beef drop cartridge, that was episode one. It's styled after an official Atari 7800 cartridge with a silver label, the same text Atari 7800 video game cartridge at the top of the front label with 7800 and dark red text and a very lovely drawing of beef drop characters on the cover with a copyright date, uh, copyright 2006 Ken Siders for one or two players published by Atari Age. The end label is again styled after official Atari 7800 cartridges. It says beef drop in dark red letters and Atari 7800 trademark pro system in black letters. Basically that cartridge was made to look like an official 7800 cartridge from back then. And Casey Munchkin, which is the prior episode, it's another one of those homebrews with completely customized labels. It's, uh, I believe the label art was done by Mark Oberhäuser, and it was based entirely on the European video pack version of the Casey Munchkin graphics. And the end label is also customized. Purple background, white text says Casey Munchkin. So there you go. I'm now all caught up on label designs. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's um, that's the feedback that I heard about Alpha Race. 
So, uh, wow, that's already episode number three in the can. So what else do I have to say? I really, really enjoy Alpha Race myself. And what I like about this episode is that uh, from feedback that I got is that Basically, the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast is not just a big love fest. It's okay to have disagreeing opinions, obviously, and I do hope that homebrew developers, when they hear criticism, take it to heart and take it as actually encouragement and they don't get discouraged from doing further work for this console that we all hopefully love, despite how it could have been much better. Thank you, Tremels. But... <laughs> Okay, did I say that? I had a little bit of a struggle over what to talk about for episode four, because I realized that so many of the titles that I have left to talk about are from Bob DeCrescenzo, a.k.a. Pac-Man Plus. And I figured, well, there's no way around it. I'm going to have to do some back-to-back Bob DeCrescenzo things. So uh, I figured, well, right now, I might as well just jump into a Bob DeCrescenzo title. So next episode, episode four, I'm going to talk about the homebrew Frenzy. And unlike this episode's game, Frenzy is available at the Atari Age Store. (laughs) But um, anyway, thank you all for listening. And I should discuss how to reach out to me. I don't think I did enough of that last time. You can email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And again, that's the number four. That's F-A-B, the number four, it.com. You can comment on the Facebook page. Just look for Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. You can tweet me at homebrew78. Easy enough. And the show notes page is located on the web at homebrew78.fab4it.com. And if you are able to and interested in supporting this podcast financially, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And what you can do is set up an amount that you wish to donate every month. And believe me, I will be very thankful. Uh, It could be as little as a dollar or as much as you want. I hate to put that out there. I'm not saying this podcast will not continue without donations. In fact, it will continue without donations, but any little bit helps, especially considering that I actually have to buy these homebrews that I'm going to talk about or else I will have nothing to talk about. (laughs) But uh, anyway, uh, before I go, I just want to leave with this here in the States. We have a new presidential administration taking over. So we had eight years of one and now we're looking at at least four of another. And all I'm going to say is that I truly hope that this administration recognizes and hopefully celebrates the wonderful diversity that we have in this country. It was, I, I was just thinking earlier, I never really thought about it much before, but where I currently work, it is extremely diverse. I've never seen such diversity in the workplace before. Uh, Where I work, we have people of just about any color. We have a lot of white people, a lot of black people, a lot of other colors. (laughs) We have Christians, we have Jews, we have Muslims, we have atheists. We have diversity in sexuality. The only thing I don't think we have really in terms of diversity, I don't think we have any transgender people, or at least none of them have actually, none of my coworkers have ever talked about being transgender. And it just seems that every time I turn around where I work, they're, they're giving us more and more benefits. They just announced transit benefits where I work so we can save money on mass transit. And 
I'm getting more days off than I used to, and they're doing everything they can to make it a great place to work. And I certainly hope that our incoming presidential administration makes this a great country to live. So that way we all have something good to look forward to. I hope that everybody that I care about finds themselves better off in four years than they do now. And I hope that those I care about find themselves better off now than they did four and eight years ago. But anyway, whatever happens, I wish everybody the best. Whether you like the incoming administration or not, let's do what we can to make this next four years a great four years. And one way of making these next four years a great set of four years, please give these hardworking developers the support they deserve. Thank you again for listening, everybody. And I will talk to you again with episode four. Wait, hold on just a sec. I have a feeling I'm forgetting something here. Oh, right, 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 right. The Ed Ladin Seagull 78 contest. That's right. I was giving away an Ed Ladin Seagull 78 adapter. And those of you who don't know what that is, sorry you're too late to enter, but uh, for information purposes, the Seagull 78 is an adapter that you plug a Sega Genesis controller into, and then you plug the adapter into the joystick port of your Atari 7800. And that way, you can use the Sega Genesis controller for two-button games and have two separately functioning firing buttons. And this is how many people love to play Atari 7800 games. So anyway, um, I'm going to... Um, drop out now and take you over to contest headquarters, AKA my kitchen for the drawing. So here's what we're going to do. I am not going to pick the contest winner. Uh, you'll see what's going to happen in just a sec. As you can see right now, I am in my kitchen right now. So here's what I'm going to do in this bag. I have all the entries, uh, all the names of the people who entered this contest. Uh, there are five of them. And attached to each of these cards is a piece of paper with the name of the entrant on the back of the piece of paper. I have no idea who's on which card, but I'm going to lay them out. Here's one. Let's see. Ah, crap. Here's two, and three, and four, and five. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let my beagle choose the winner. And how am I going to do that? <laughs> well, if you've never experienced a beagle before, let me tell you something, beagles are always hungry. So, let me show you what's gonna happen. I'm going to lay pieces of dog food on each card. Whichever one she eats first, that's the winner. Ruthie, come here. Come here, pup, come here. Come here, girl, come on. Ruthie, come on, come on, come here. You want to eat? She spotted something suspicious. Ruthie, Ruthie. Oh, 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 oh. And let the record show she went for the center one first. So, here's the center one. And let's see, that is going to be Mark Fiorillo, or is that Fiorillo? Congratulations, Mark. You have won an Aladdin Seagull 78. Oh, by the way, you can actually see that video of Ruthie choosing the winner of the Seagull 78 on YouTube. I'm not going to put a link in the show notes right now, but if you want to see it, you can go to tinyurl.com slash seagull78. 
So yes, congratulations, Mark Fiorillo. Or again, or is it pronounced uh, Fiorio? I I don't know. I apologize either way, Mark. Uh, please get in touch with me, Mark, and tell me where I can send this thing. And if I don't hear from you within, say, a week, I will reach out to you and say, hey, Mark, where can I send this thing? Now, I said that the way to enter is to email me. And one of the things you could talk about was your favorite 7800 homebrew. So that's what uh, Mark did here. He says, my favorite homebrew for the Robert DiCrescenzo's Atari 7800. <laughs> it, it, the 7800 is Bob's, that's right. Yeah, anyway, he says, it's Junior Pac-Man. It is by far the most challenging of the 80s era Pac-Man games and a beautiful conversion. And I, yeah, I totally agree. I can't wait to talk about that. In fact, you know what? I had said that next episode, I'm going to talk about Frenzy, which is a Bob DiCrescenzo title. And that is exactly what I plan to do. And I already have the episode after that planned out, and that's going to be Dungeon Stalker. So basically, episode four, episode four is Frenzy. Episode five is Dungeon Stalker. Episode six will be Junior Pac-Man. Partly because Mark, the winner, said that it's his favorite episode, and partly because I realized I'm a major Pac-Man fan, and I haven't talked about a Pac-Man game, although Casey Munchkin kind of, sort of, is, uh, in a way. But still, there is kind of demand for Junior Pac-Man, so I will talk about that one for episode six. Um, so basically, hey, if you have any thoughts on any of those games that I'm going to be talking about, or any of the games I already talked about, you can send them over to me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. Can be audio, can be text, whatever. Anyway, thank you for listening, and again, congratulations, Mark. And I will talk to you all next time with Frenzy. Bye-bye. Basically, the artwork done by... I, if I'm not mistaken, it was done by, oh, shit, forgot the guy's name.